Hello everyone, welcome to the latest Mark Leverage podcast. Lovely to have you with me. This one is for the February-March period and as usual I've collected together what I hope is an interesting selection of topics to chat to you about. And I'm going to start by reflecting on Vanishing Inc.'s The Session, the three-day convention that took place in the middle of January. I haven't actually been to a live, many live conventions in the last few years. I went to Blackpool last year and that was all I did in 2022. So it was nice to be able to, to get to a live event again and to really get involved with the magic and to feel that you're part of something interesting and exciting. Having been to several of these now, it's interesting to see how the convention has gradually changed over the years. Originally, of course, it was a very intimate event just for close-up magicians, and usually a lot of cards, not much else. Whereas these days, with the increase in numbers up to four or five hundred, it's become a much more general convention. And although, kind of in my head, I still think of it as a close-up orientated event, actually looking at the bill and the performers and lecturers that took place this year in particular, Quite a bit of it was stand-up mentalism, even mathematics this year. It was very different. And actually, I have to say, it's become more of a general convention, except it doesn't have a gala show. Well, at least not a gala show in the accepted sense. So, although it is more close-up than it is stage, there is a lot in between those two things that also takes place. And it, it is very enjoyable, there's no question about it. Having the, the venue as a hotel in, at Heathrow Airport, of course, has turned it into a very international convention. People can fly in from all over the world, really, and they're immediately at the convention centre without any further travelling. And this has led it to being almost FISM-like as you're walking around in the breaks in between the lectures and things. You can hear so many different uh, languages being spoken. It really is a very international gathering. And I think enriched for that. The bill this year was a sort of mixed bag, really. Um, my favourite thing probably was Nick DeFat. I loved his show. Uh, he, he's really funny, a very vibrant, young, uh, sort of stand-up magician who has got some great ideas. And his lecture was very entertaining, too. In fact, on the basis of one of the routines that he talked about in his lecture, I ended up buying his, his book, Offbeat simply to get the details of that one particular item. But uh, he was very entertaining and, and a, a really was a standout. Um, the guest of honour was Richard Turner, the, the blind, legendary card magician. And uh, he, he featured twice, actually. He had uh, his hour and a half main session was when he performed his show called Delt. And th this is a, a very sort of strange mix of personal stories about his life and by the way if you haven't heard his life story if if uh, all the things that he mentioned are genuinely all completely true he's had enough intrigue and amazing things happen to last several lifetimes never mind one and this is interspersed with a number of amazing card effects that he's well, so well known for but not being able to see at all it's extraordinary what he can do with a pack of cards it, it beggars belief you you watch it and you think i have no idea how this is possible 
uh, and it, it is mesmerically interesting. So that was his show. Um, the lecture I thought was a little bit disappointing, apart from a, a rather overly long bit on second dealing and bottom dealing and center dealing, which was of limited interest because it went on too long. There was a bit more repeat of some of the things he'd been talking about from his life story. And he, although he had Josh and Andy up with him trying to corral him into providing some content that was more lecture based, I didn't think it, it really was that effective, which is a bit of a pity. He, I think he could have possibly given away one or two, if he didn't want to give away lots, of his secrets. Nobody's going to do what he does. Um, and it would have been fascinating to, to know how he is able to, to do some of the magic that he does do. But he didn't do any of that, which was possibly a little bit disappointing. But nonetheless, a worthy um, sort of person to to make the person of honour, if you like, at this particular event. And I'm sure I enjoyed seeing him for the first time live. I'm sure it was the same for a lot of other people too. One of the surprises was Luke Jamay. Luke Jamay, as I think since Andy and Josh have been doing the convention, he's been um, on every time. And this time you naturally think of him as being a mentalism. He did coin stuff uh, and he did it very well and uh, had some interesting thoughts on the cylinder and coins and one or two other things. And so that was a quite a quite an eye opener. There were some dealers there, of course, but um, I, I, not a very big selection of dealers. They're only open on the Sunday, the third day. And of course, with Vanishing Inc. themselves being open for all three days and, the and two days worth of lecturers having passed through before the dealers, the main dealers room actually opens, I would imagine that it's a bit tricky for the dealers who are just there for the one day to make much out of it. I would imagine people who have been there for three days are getting towards the end of their the amount of money they're prepared to spend. So I don't know how successful that would be. But nevertheless, uh, the way that the convention is organised is excellent. The, the format of having short shows or lectures of 20 minutes I, I really like that with this sort of the actual thing they call the Friday session the Saturday session I really like those because you can get very varied stuff and that was where we saw some of the mathematical stuff which was um, I mean Arthur Benjamin in his lecture gave away some of the secrets of the things that, that he does and it's absolutely incredible uh, really, really interesting stuff with magic squares and, and that sort of thing. And it, it had the potential to be deadly dull, but it wasn't dull in the slightest. And I, and I thought to myself, well, I, at school I hated maths, but if he'd been my maths teacher, I would have loved it because his enthusiasm and, and the way he put everything across was really excellent. So all in all, it, it was, I don't think it was the greatest session that I've been to, but it was a good one and I thoroughly enjoyed it and I shall look forward to going again next year. One of the things that I look forward to each month is receiving Ian Keeble's email newsletter. Always interesting, Ian's got very singular views on a lot of things to do with magic and I, I find his approach uh, thought-provoking at the very least. And he did a special extra newsletter, which he called his Christmas one, in which he did a review of Britain's Got Talent, The Ultimate Magician Show, which, would, uh, was, which had just featured on the television in December. And he did a review of all of the magic acts 
in that. And Ian being Ian, he, um, he, he does have very particular views about what is good and what is not. And he's not afraid to criticise if he feels that it's justified. Unfortunately, Mandy Mooden, who was victim of some of his slightly off, as she saw it, comments, took to social media in order to harangue him uh, for criticising her show and trying to put the record straight about various things that had gone on behind the scenes, which Ian obviously didn't know about. And, and Ian, when he was made in, well, aware of some of the things that had happened and the way that her particular act had been cut and so on and so forth, sort of apologised to her and said, oh, I'm sorry about that. But it, what it led me to wonder is, should a reviewer, if that's what he is, as and that's what he is in this particular occasion, should a reviewer ever have to apologise for their opinion on something? Because Ian couldn't possibly have known what was gone on behind the scenes. He can only reflect on what was broadcast. And he can't second guess what was supposed to happen and what eventually ended up on the cutting room floor and didn't happen. And it's true of, of any of it, same with product reviews. You can only review the item that you have in your hands and give your opinion on it. Reviews are always opinion. Mandy was particularly upset but because she said, well, you, you know, what right do you have? Nobody asked you to do a review. What right do you have to, to do a review? Well, the trouble is, of course, anybody who puts themselves out there and does anything publicly, even if it's only review by social media, people are always happy to make, very quickly, quite often, to make comments. So I don't think it's wrong that Ian should should make do reviews or make comments about things if he wants to for his newsletter. And I'm not sure that he should have to also apologise for his views if his views were genuine if his views were honest uh, based on what he saw on the television in this case and and if you go into the business of just slanging somebody off and, and just being particularly unpleasant about somebody's act that's one thing but if you're making an, uh, uh, hopefully an objective view of what you've seen then Surely that's valid, isn't it? Um, and does a reviewer, for instance, have to be an official reviewer to be allowed to do reviews? In other words, if, if he was a paid reviewer and was for a magazine or a newspaper or something like that, and he made the same comments, would that be more justifiable? Is it the fact that he's not an official reviewer, perhaps that she didn't like and that he'd take it on himself to, to publish a review? I don't know. It's a pity when people fall out. I, I do hope they've made up. I, I'm sure they have. And they will no doubt see each other at the Magic Circle anyway at some point. So uh, let's hope that they do. But I just thought it was interesting that uh, Ian had seen or felt that it was right to apologise for, for having a view that somebody else didn't actually like. For getting on for 23 years, Duncan Trillo has been providing an amazing service for us magicians. His Magic Week website, which he updates every single week with the latest UK magic news, is unbelievable. 
that anybody could do this every single week for so long, I really take my hat off to. And of course, really, he's the digital version of what Abra magazine was all those years ago, where every week the magazine would arrive and it had all the latest convention reports and dealers adverts and news. Well, Duncan Trillo's Magic Week does that as well, of course. And down the bottom of the, the latest page of news, because the news is, is UK news, but down the bottom he has a series of links where he's obviously gone onto the internet and tried to find any references to magic in articles outside of the normal magic world. And sometimes these are quite interesting and you see a lay person's perspective when they're writing about something that we know more about as magicians. And there was one that I followed the other day which was, I thought, quite interesting. And it was saying about the fact that some lay people who have young children are starting to wonder whether the prices that we magicians charge for our children's shows are justified. Should we pay hundreds of pounds? This, this particular lady said, when for 40 pounds, I can go to here, this particular venue, and I can have this kind of a party, and I don't have to have anything in my house and so on and so forth. It's the, it's the classic, and this, this sort of situation has come up for discussion on many occasions in the past, the classic thing about, do you go to somewhere that provides a party in a venue like a sports centre or somewhere like that, or a soft play, or do you go to the expense of hiring a hall or having a magician come in and do games and magic and puppets and all the rest of it, either in your home or, in, or somewhere like that? And I did, it did lead me to wonder whether um, the rates that we need to charge as children's entertainers for a lot of people, especially at the moment when money's perhaps a bit tight and people are trying to cut out some of the extras, they're too busy paying their energy bills to, to worry about whether they've got a magician at their party or not, and whether we are still working on prices that might have been fine pre-COVID, but these days, are they still too high? Now, it's very hard to judge this, of course, and, and I suppose individual magicians would say, well, I'm still getting bookings at this price, so it must be fine. And it may well be. But I do wonder whether there, are, there is a certain dissatisfaction amongst the lay public because they feel that, well, the price that's being charged is, seems to be so much out of proportion to what venues are charging elsewhere that maybe we're a luxury that they don't wish to afford. It would be interesting to know whether children's entertainers have noticed a downturn since we've come back, if you like, from the COVID restrictions, whether there's been a, a downturn in the take-up for children's parties of, of live entertainment or whether it's as vibrant as, as it ever was. If you're one of the magicians who does a lot of kids' shows, why don't you contact me and tell me? Way back in the 1970s, when I was a student, I attended Bristol University. And at that time, I joined the Bristol Society of Magicians and also the Bath Circle of Magicians. And for about a 10, year, 10 to 12 year period, I used to regularly attend both those clubs. I'm actually, even though I live an hour and a half away from Bristol these days, I'm still a member of the Bristol Society of Magic. And in fact, two of my closest magic friends are on the committee of that club and in fact hold offices there and one of them Chris Payne he organized an evening recently to do with how to bring magic ideas to the magic marketplace 
and he asked me whether I would like to come up to Bristol and be part of that evening and give my experiences. Obviously, having had 40 years as a magic dealer, he thought it might be a, a unique perspective that I could give on the current situation and what the situation used to be. Uh, he also invited a few other people. We had um, Roger Nico from Card Shark, who was the other sort of full-time dealer, sort of giving his input. And then there were three or four members who had also brought one or two things to the marketplace, either through dealers or through their own efforts. And everybody came along and gave their experiences. And it was a really interesting evening. I think it was one of those things that it could have been deadly dull and boring for the people who perhaps attended from the club and had no intention ever of perhaps trying to get an idea of theirs into the magic marketplace but i think because of the variety of people talking about their experiences and the various stories that we were all able to give it did actually turn out to be a very interesting evening because the fact is that magic get bringing magic to the marketplace these days is very different from when i started right back in the late 70s early 80s Certainly the biggest single change was, of course, the Internet, which really started to explode in from the turn of this century and provided us as magic dealers with infinite opportunities to get our products out in front of, well, a worldwide audience, which is amazing. Uh, it, it also increases the amount of competition, of course. And with the number of people who have wanted to and have felt able to bring products in front of magicians for them to buy, it's led to companies such as Murphy being Murphy's being people who can distribute widely right across the world to shops that wouldn't otherwise have been able to have uh, certain items because they weren't produced by people who are living in their country. Now it's an international business. Well, when I started, it, it really wasn't as much. So the, the whole way that it, it's done these days, the economics of it, the, the postage, the packaging, the, uh, the customs that needs to be done for overseas trading, running a business these days isn't easy. The fact that most, most dealers aren't bricks and mortar shop type dealers, they are internet dealers and often don't actually carry very much stock. They just order it from places like Murphy's and get it supplied quickly and then pass it on to customers. The whole nature of it has changed. And there are a lot more uh, magic dealers who are essentially just retailers in the sense that they buy in anybody's product, whatever's new, whatever's hot, whatever people want, and they will buy it in and pass it on rather than selling their own things. And I think in my day when I started, I was selling just my own thing. Stephen Tucker was saying just his. And you had a lot of much smaller dealers who were much more specialised in what they were selling. And although you do get some specialised dealers now, it's not usually based on the ideas and thoughts of one person. It might be a team of people or it might be just a small range of personal stuff supplemented by a lot of stuff bought from Murphy's. So it, it is a very different picture and it's much more global and it's much more professional in many ways as to, as well if you think about a lot of the the video dems that are on people's websites some of them are little little movies aren't they in themselves it's very sophisticated whereas publicity in the old days was basically just in in magazines that's all magic magazines that's basically all it was or you went to a convention and you actually dem stuff and showed it 
whereas now conventions are not so important because people are buying as they go along. So it was a, it was a really good evening and Chris organised it, I thought, very well and kept, kept everything moving along at a nice pace. And I do hope that the Bristol Society members who came found it interesting and that they learned something that they didn't know about how to bring magic to the marketplace. Ever since I started magic as a child, I've always gravitated towards tricks which use small props. I've never been one of these people who hankers after performing or presenting big illusions, or even medium-sized illusions for that matter. They just don't appeal to me. Things with large boxes and apparatus just leave me completely cold. I love things with cards and coins and pieces of rope, things that I can carry on me. And of course, as a strolling magician, that's absolutely wonderful to be able to turn up at a venue with my entire act sort of basically in what I'm wearing feels wonderful. But even in my kid show and in my stand-up work when I do it, I still don't branch out into anything very big. My Magic Party kid show comprises of everything that can fit into one roll-on table. So games, prizes, magic, the whole lot was made I made sure that everything that I needed would fit into the one box and and if something if a prop came along for a trick that was too big to go into my roll-on table then I was quite quite uh, sure that I was never going to do it I wouldn't buy it I wouldn't even entertain the thought of doing it because it was too big to fit in the box I don't really know where this attitude comes from although in my early formative years when I was first in Bristol uh, I spent quite a lot of time with Tony Griffith, and Tony was of, of, of the same mind. He, in the old days, he would he had an, an LP record case, and he used to keep his stand-up act inside that. And and I always liked that he could come in, put it down on a chair, open the case, and he could start. And I copied that for a number of years. I had a similar thing, and I created a way of making a table out of the lid. And then further on from that, for my stand-up act, something that I still have and still use. I had um, a box all table, which is basically a similar idea, a square box screwed into a, a tripod stand and a cymbal stand, and the lid opened out and created a, a worktop for you to, to work on, and the box contained the props. And to be able to walk into a venue in one go and put that down and open it and begin, I find infinitely uh, fascinating and pleasing. And there's no doubt that over the years it's stood me in good stead. Being able to set up my act quickly with the minimum of fuss has proved a boon. And there was one children's show I remember many years ago going to where I arrived. The children had been there obviously for some time. And I entered into this, this um, village hall and was confronted by what was I can only describe as a minor war zone. It was incredible. The kids were screaming. They were throwing furniture around and all the parents, such as they were, and organisers, all the adults were standing pinned to the walls, trying to ignore the bedlam and the noise and the fighting and all the bad behaviour that was going on. And I came into the room, into the middle of all of this, and the woman who had booked me rushed over and said, oh, thank goodness you're here. She was hoping I was going to corral all these wild children to some sort of calm bunch of individuals. Well, had I had a complicated setup to get ready, I wouldn't have been able to do it because it was just too much. So I, what I actually did was open my amplifier, got my amplifier out, got my microphone on before I did anything else and used the microphone to 
to get their attention, to quieten them down, to get the kids over, sit down in front of me. And then while I talked to them, I was able to quickly open up my roll-on table and I could start my show straight away. Had I had a lot of complicated stuff to get ready or to position or display, uh, this wouldn't have been possible. And, and I wouldn't have been able to hold and keep the attention of the kids given that they'd been sort of misbehaving so much for I don't know how long, but it looked like quite a long time before I got there. So there are times when it's a really big advantage to be able to set up quickly. And also, um, if you have a long walk from the car to the room where you're going to be working, if you have lots of case and tables, it, it means you've got to make several in and out trips. It takes longer to get back out again, as well as it does to get in, of course, not to mention the weight of it all and the physical exertion of having to carry perhaps up loads of stairs and along long corridors and this sort of thing. So being self-contained, I've always found to be a real boon and uh, I can't see me ever going away from that. And certainly uh, if I was given a choice about anything that required too big to go in any of my boxes, I wouldn't choose it. I always go with the small items. Wouldn't do for us all to be the same, of course. I'm glad there are other people who do bigger stuff, but it's just not for me really. Now, a few minutes ago, I mentioned about the Bristol Society of Magic and the fact that I'm still a member. And as a member, I receive their bi-monthly magazine, which is put together by my good friend, Paul Prager. And he wrote a little article in the latest issue, which, which really tickled me, and I just wanted to, to pass it on to you, in which he referred to the fact that the Civil Aviation Authority, in order to grant pilots licenses, requires prospective pilots to do a certain number of hours, a certain amount of flight time. And the more flight hours that you log, uh, the, the bigger the aircraft, basically, you're allowed to fly. I mean, that's not all of it, of course, but that's part of it. And he was then applying the idea of flight time to magicians. So, well, maybe commercial magicians should be licensed in the same way. You have to do a certain amount of commercial bookings in order to receive a license to then progress to even more bookings. And he was jokingly talking about setting up the Commercial Magicians Authority, which would grant these licenses to prospective entertainers. And it's, it's, it's a funny thought, isn't it? That, well, you know, you do 20 hours of close-up magic and then you can get a license to be a permanent strolling magician or whatever. And I love this idea. I thought this is great. But behind that, of course, the, the fun part of this, if you like, there is a serious thought about flight time. And there have been a number of people who've talked about flight time. In fact, coincidentally, I'm just uh, reading at the moment John Graham's Stage by Stage book, and he mentions flight time. Those are the words he used, flight time, in that as the best way to get experience and to hone your act. And I absolutely agree with this. There is nothing quite like live performance, as anybody who performs will know. You can practice an act till you're blue in the face and you can think you've got it absolutely nailed and that everything is perfect. You go out and it falls apart because you haven't had the in front of an audience flight time in order to knock the edges off it to make you realize that perhaps a, a presentational premise that you had really doesn't work in front of real people that what you thought was going to be hilarious didn't get even a smile out of the audiences and so on and so forth so there really is nothing quite like getting the experience in front of an audience 
Of course, judging at what point you're ready to go and in front of an audience is, is a moot point because I, I think when you get to the stage that I'm at, for instance, I kind of know if I've got a new trick, I kind of know when I'm ready with it because I've been performing for so long and I have enough experience to think, well, I'm going to just go out and do this. And if it doesn't go quite right, I can wing it and I can sort it out on the hoof and eventually knock it into shape. But obviously, if you have less experience, it's a bit more, perhaps a bit more daunting to, to think, well, if I don't work out every last little bit of this, I, I could come a cropper. And of course, the problem with that is that you can, you can spend forever getting ready and never getting to the point where you've got the courage to actually show it to anybody. I mean, yes, you get magicians who buy a trick one day and try to perform it in their show the next when they really shouldn't be. But as the opposite is also true. I think there are some people who worry about so much about how it's going to go that they never actually get to the point where they perform it. They're always the world class at getting ready, which is no good either. So in this sense, the idea of flight time, the idea of using your performances as a stage of practice rehearsal and getting your act familiar is a really good one. And it also shows why the, the old time acts, the old musical acts, where they had basically a tight set, a period of 15, 20 minutes, whatever it would be, 45 minutes perhaps, they had their act. And they did it for years and years and years. All different venues, different audiences, obviously, but they were able to keep the same act. And as a result of that, of course, they had so many hours of magic flight time that they had worked out all the little nuances of it. And when I think when you see people um, who have performed sh the same show for a very long time, provided they're not jaded or just going through the motions because they're bored with it, there is an element of, of slickness which only comes from having hours and hours and hours of presenting the magic in front of a live audience. So I think we all need to aspire to that, get the stuff to the point where you think, OK, this is now good enough for me to go out and do it. And then when you get in front of the audience, that's when you'll really make big strides, I think, in order to make it into something really great. For the past few years, I've concentrated on producing a range of e-books in which I'm able to give advice about various aspects of magic performance. And the Professional Worker series has got six e-books in it, all of which I think cover in good detail things that you might want to know about, whether it's table hopping, whether it's strolling, whether it's marketing yourself or any other of the aspects of magic that I've covered in the series. But having done that, I haven't actually produced any e-books with tricks in for quite a while. And I'm putting that right now by the start of a new series called the Formidable Magic series. Formidable, incidentally, is spelt F-O-U-R-midable, since there will be four effects in each of the e-books. And the first title that I've produced is called Formidable Card Magic. And in this, there are, guess what, four card routines. The first one is called Royal Flush, in which you get a deck shuffled and then in short order, with the help of a spectator, you produce all the cards required for a Royal Flush. The second routine is called Big Deal. You place one prediction card in view to one side, a, sh a spectator shuffles the deck and the cards are dealt face up into a pile one at a time and the spectator can call stop at any point. There is no force. 
the card that they stop on matches the prediction that you placed aside at the beginning. Very strong trick. The third one is called It's Not What You Think, which is um, a production of two selected cards, but in a very unexpected way and with a terrific kicker ending. It's based on a, a Gary Jones trick, which I've adapted and changed and used some of the moves on for this. And it really is very, very effective with a lovely surprise ending. And the final item is called the Reds and the Blacks. You have two sets of cards, four black suit cards, four red suit cards. And the red suit cards, one at a time, sort of penetrate up through the black suit cards. It's a, it's a lovely sequence. It's one of my older items, but I've always liked it because it has a flow to it that uh, is really interesting. It's a sort, of, sort of like a packet trick in a way, but only uh, there's no, no fakes, only eight cards are used. The handling is very straightforward and it creates a really nice, clean, magical effect. So those are the four items in Formidable Card Magic. They're all um, photo uh, illustrated to make sure you can learn the routines and get them up to speed as quickly as possible. And the price of it is £12. Now this ebook is going to be the first in a series. I have other titles in the works which will gradually come on stream when I get the time to put them together. And the material itself, uh, the actual routines, are ones that I've extracted from eClub Pro but which have not been published in this format before. Uh, most of them are only have only been provided as videos. This is now putting it all down in easy to understand text. So I'm hoping that uh, you'd like to uh, have a look at that and see whether it's of interest to you. That all the tricks are practical. I don't use, as you know, I don't use lots of sleight of hand and difficult handling. So I just don't believe in it. And the effects are all very clear. So hopefully you'll in, enjoy learning them and then soon be able to do them. So that's Formidable Card Magic then. And that's a latest release from me. One of the more interesting bits of news I came across recently was the fact that Vanishing Inc. have purchased two bricks and mortar magic stores. Formerly the Houdini's Magic Shops which are in Disneyland in Los Angeles, they, they have bought them from the current owners and are going to be opening up with their own new range of material and so on and so forth, these functioning real shops. Uh, and it's an interesting and also in many ways a very surprising piece of news because although Vanishing Inc, Josh and Andy have always tried to push the envelope in the things that they've done in the way they've expanded the business you think about the the fact they took over Magifest, they've taken over the session. They have these things called the, the, the retreat where they do these special exclusive events. So that they're always trying to do different things and their magic share program and, and so on and so forth. They, they are very creative in the way they look at their overall business plan. But this is very much, I think, a departure for them to actually have a physical couple of physical premises to to uh, to deal with. And of course, with that came a load of staff. So they suddenly got an, an, an extra number of staff to deal with. So it's, it's a very big project for them. And and I, at first I couldn't quite see the logic. It seemed to me to be counterintuitive. Here they have a very successful, basically online business. So why would they need bricks and mortar until they actually explained 
that the people who go into these shops are usually beginner magicians. They are not people who, vanishing, generally speaking, already have on their books. And what they want to do, of course, is they want to take these newbies and sell them some things in the shops and then kind of harvest their email addresses and, and pass them on, as it were, to the Vanishing Inc. itself so that they become regular customers and, and create a, a new clientele. And when they said that, I mean, if it works, it sounds like a really good idea. Because I've always thought that that's one thing that bricks and mortar shops don't do very well. If you've got a, a, an online arm to a business and you don't get contact details of customers who walk in off the street into the, into the actual premises, then you're missing out on an opportunity. I know it's not easy sometimes to do that. And I know that some companies, they, they actually take your details through the till when you purchase something. And that's how they get your information and get you to sign up for special discount cards or whatever it might be. They do have ways of doing it, but a lot of shops don't even bother. So customers come and they go, and that's the, the only transaction is they happen to go into the physical shop. And what Vanishing Inca clearly have realized is that, well, this will give them a whole new potential flock of people to, to take into the Vanishing Inc. family, as it were, and, and get the business from them in years, in, in years into the future. So it seems like a, a very solid and positive thing. Now, I'm sure there will be umpteen problems, as always are, with any new venture. I know myself, uh, when, when you try something new, it all seems very straightforward. When you plan it in your head or in the middle of the night when you're discussing it and you sort of think, yep, this is a really good idea. When the reality sort of kicks in about all the things that you need to do, uh, and I'm sure they know this, that they've said as much that it's going to be very busy and very hectic. And it will be difficult for them to probably get to, get to grips with it initially. But um, if they're going to produce a, a special range of magic to sell in the shops, in these two particular shops as well, that will also put, uh, put an extra skew on the sort of things that they sell, because presumably some of these things they will also sell through the normal avenues that Vanishing Inc. uses. So there we are, where the trend is to get rid of bricks and mortar shops. Uh, Josh and Andy have, uh, are bucking the trend, aren't they? And they're doing the opposite, actually in going from digital and investing in bricks and mortar instead, rather than getting rid of them, which is a very interesting turn of events. I wish them luck with it and we'll watch with interest. I did my first lecture, The Lowdown on Close Up, way back in 1977. And I've had a whole series of lectures ever since, doing lectures every single year since then. And I've always said, and I've mentioned it in this podcast before, how much I enjoy doing lectures. There's something I really like about being able to share my ideas with others. I get a real pleasure out of that. And, and I know that, um, that a lot of the tricks I've explained in lectures, people have been able to take away and do, which is fantastic. These days, well, when I first started, there weren't that many lectures, but these days there seems to be, well, anybody who's been in magic more than about five minutes seems to be offering a lecture, which is fantastic in that we're getting a huge breadth of experience and I'm getting a wide range of magic and suiting all tastes out there on the lecture circuit. But the one disappointing thing is it's not the number of people doing lectures, it's the quality of those lectures themselves. Not in, again, not necessarily in the material, but sometimes in the way that they're put across, 
the way that they're presented. I've seen a number of lectures where the lecturer, quite frankly, doesn't appear to have thought in very much detail about what he's actually going to do. He stumbles from one effect to another with little or no regard for continuity or variety, will actively admit that, well, of course, I'm not quite quite sure what I'm going to do next. Uh, let me see. Shall I do this? Oh, no, no, I'll tell you what, I'll do this. Oh, no, I'll do that in a minute. No, I'll do this then. I mean, is this a professional lecture? Well, in my view, actually, it isn't. And, of course, doing a lecture is not just being able to present magic well. That that should be a given, I, I guess. If you're explaining tricks that you can't perform, well, that's not great, is it? So you've got to be able to perform them, present them, so people can see what, what it is that you're trying to explain to them. But lecturing is actually teaching. And teaching is not a given that everybody can do it. It's a skill. It's like anything else. You know, I would not pretend to be able to go into a huge cabaret venue and do a great cabaret show. I can't do it. I don't have the material. I don't have the experience. It's not my thing. Despite that fact, though, it would appear that just about everybody thinks that they can be a teacher and that they can teach effectively. And I think there is a skill to being able to put across an idea, even if it's a relatively simple idea, in a way that is uh, interesting, engaging, that means that you can understand the sequence of what's needed to be learned and that you can go away afterwards and actually do it. A muddled explanation or an explanation that repeats endlessly the same point way after people have got it because the lecturer just doesn't seem to realise that he doesn't need to keep on telling them the same thing all these things go to make up what can be either the difference between a very good lecture or a very bad lecture. Get it right and it's a great lecture, same material, get the, the explanations wrong and done in, in, in a sort of an inexperienced manner and it can be a bit of a dog's dinner. I, and I think the thing that I suppose upsets me the most about, well upsets, strong word, uh, that disappoints me a little bit about all this is, is the gung-ho attitude to that. That some performers who are really good when they do their act, really good performers, when they come to do a lecture, they seem to throw a lot of that out of the window. They don't seem to put in the same time, effort and practice in order to put together a coherent lecture. And it's the same whether it's an online lecture or whether it's an in-person lecture. I th my personal feeling is, and the way I've always done it, is I want the material to be varied. I want it to be uh, something that can be seen by the audience and that I'm going to be able to explain clearly enough so they can understand it. I think the, ma the material needs to be hopefully not too difficult. Now I understand there are lecturers who show advanced sleight of hand and it's brilliant to watch. I love watching it. Um, you might not expect to do it but nevertheless when they explain it to you, you, you have a lot of admiration for it. But in my case I like to think I want my magic to be practical for people to be able to go away and do. So I'm always looking to select items that I think will fit the average magician in the average club. You know, some people have got less experience than others, and some people have got a bit more, of course, and I'm trying to find things that will appeal at some stage during the lecture to everybody, irrespective of their particular skill set. So I'll think about that. I'll think about segues, making the, the actual lecture itself into a little bit of a show, or maybe it has a theme a theme about where you're interspersing um, information 
and facts about a particular type of magic with examples that are actual tricks that you then perform and explain. All this takes a lot of planning and I practice it, even though it's boring to practice things like that. I will practice the explanations as well as the performances and I try to end up with something that I hope comes across in a professional way. And I just wish a few more people would do the same thing really. So if you're a magician who's new to lecturing, please do give it the thought and the practice that it deserves and do the, the team of lecturers that you represent proud. Right, just hang on a minute, just getting off my soapbox. Ugh, there we go, that's better. Well, thank you so much for listening to the latest podcast. I hope you found some of the things I've talked about here of interest. And uh, I will be back with you in a couple of months with a whole new series of things to chat about. In the meantime, have a good couple of months and I'll see you soon. Bye for now.